My name is Anne Wilson and uh, in 2024 I'm delighted to host Series 3 of our Emerge Australia podcasts. This is our clinical series in which we bring you some of the world's leading clinicians and researchers in the field of ME-CFS and long COVID. Before we start, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to Elders past present, emerging, and those in attendance. Our guest today is Professor Anthony Komaroff, who has been at the forefront of MECFS research for many decades. He is a physician, clinical investigator, editor, and publisher. He serves as the distinguished Simcox Clifford Higby Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Senior Physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He's published over 280 research articles and book chapters and two books. Professor Komaroff serves on the team for the Centre for Solutions for MECFS at Columbia University, a collaborative research centre partially funded by the National Institutes of Health. There are many more accolades where these come from, but today I'm delighted to welcome Professor Anthony Komaroff to our clinical podcast series. Welcome, Tony, and it's, it's great to have the opportunity to speak with you again after our initial meeting last year in Boston. Well, it's great to be talking with you again, Anne, and thanks very much for inviting me. Ah, that's a pleasure. So, Tony, you are a heavyweight in the MECFS research world. So to start off, um, I'm wondering whether you could tell us a bit about yourself and what led you into the field of MECFS research in the first place. Okay, well, first of all, I should say I am trying to lose weight. So, <laughs> you know, I've, I'm doing my best. Um, I was um, a young uh, academic physician in the early 1980s um pursuing very different kind of research than uh, as the research part of my academic life uh then i have wound up spending because i saw several patients in my practice in the early 1980s who told me that they had been perfectly healthy people uh they came down with what at first seemed just like a regular flu or virus, uh, but then it never really fully went away. And they were hobbled uh, in, and not not themselves. And that was 
a new a new kind of illness to me. Uh, no one had ever taught me about such an illness in medical school. I couldn't find any description of such an illness in the textbooks. Uh, and that seemed very interesting to me. So I started to talk to colleagues about pursuing it as a research project. At first, there was not a lot of interest. But then I heard about people at the National Institutes of Health, uh, people in Denver, people in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, who also were seeing patients like this. And sort of all of us got together and met and started to talk about how we could really get the country, the United States, to begin uh, investing in some small-scale research to see what we could figure out about this illness. So I, the short answer to your question is um, it all sort of came out of the blue. It reminded me of, of something that the late but, but not forgotten John Lennon once said when he said, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. That's right. And that's, and that's exactly what happened to me. Yeah, yeah. What a great way of putting it. And it's the way it happens for a lot of us, isn't it? So yep. um, uh, we're very grateful uh, for those other plans that you were making because they led you into this um, amazing uh, work that you've done. And I, I went through, you know, a whole list of your research publications and articles um, in in preparing questions for you and uh you know, you really are a heavyweight in this world. And so uh, thank you for that. So when we last met, you discussed with me the famous 2006 Dubbo study, which um, was published in the British Medical Journal, where you followed every case of Epstein-Barr virus, glandular fever and Ross River fever for 12 months. And at the end of a year, you found that 10% of all patients had MECFS. Can you discuss that a bit and tell us why this was such a critical piece of research work at the time? Sure, but it, I was not involved in doing that study. Um, that, was, that was an Australian study from the start to finish. It was, I think it had some support from the U.S. Uh, Centers for Disease Control, but right. Dr. Hick, Hickey and his colleagues really conceived that study. And I think it's one of the most important studies that has been done. And there are more than 10,000 published studies in the literature on this subject already. So it's, it's in my mind, one of the most important. Why? Uh, well, they had an they saw that they had a very interesting opportunity. Uh, there was this small rural community, Dubbo, where people pretty much uh, stayed in this town. There wasn't a lot of people leaving town to go elsewhere in the country, um, and they were all getting their medical care from the same small group of doctors and health facilities. So you really could follow people over time, follow their health over time in a way that can be much harder to do in a 
big city like Sydney, for example, where people are seen in one medical setting, but may then also be seen in another setting and or may leave for another city. It's, it was just much easier to, to achieve their goal, which was to identify and follow every single case of infection with three different kinds of infectious agents over the course of a year and follow them very systematically and regularly and find out uh, how they did after the acute infection uh, resolved. Did it? Did the symptoms go away entirely? Uh, and if they didn't, in how many people did they not go away entirely? And what symptoms were they left with? And, and what they found was that 10% of people who were infected with, with three very different kind of infectious agents, about 10% of each of those three groups remained with hobbled by symptoms uh, a year later. And that was very high. For instance, Epstein-Barr virus causes mononucleosis or glandular fever. Uh, and the textbooks at the time said, people with this infection, with this condition, all get better over the next few months. And, and one textbook said, by four or five months, everyone is back to normal. But what this study showed was, no, 10% a year later, we're not back to normal. And that was a very striking result. And then the Dubbo study went on to show two other really important things. One was that the people who were not recovered after a year were much more likely to have a very overactive immune system response when they first got ill with the infection. Uh, there was something about how aggressively their immune system responded at first that was associated with their remaining ill a year later. And then the other thing they showed was that while some people had the theory that um, the folks who didn't get better after a year probably had been suffering from depression in the months and years before they got the infection, what the study showed was that was not true at all. People who did not get better after a year were no more likely to have been depressed than the people who got better during that year. So it was not a psychological response to the infection that they were suffering from. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's, that is, um, you know, there's such key points uh, and, and in many ways are just so pertinent for us today, aren't they, with the advent of COVID and, of course, now long COVID. Um, I, we're going to talk in a moment about your recently published article um, uh, in Frontiers in Medicine. However, do you see that the outcomes of that Dubbo study as being almost a precursor to and could be used 
um, uh, in looking at what we're seeing in long COVID, uh, the fact that research now indicates that about 45% of people who have long COVID for a period of three to six months will go on to be reclassified as having MECFS. Where do you see the links between the long COVID stuff we're seeing now and the outcomes of this Dubbo study? Well, I think you're right to point to a connection between them, Anne. Um, what struck me about the Dubbo study and many people was that regardless of which kind of very different infectious agent people were infected with, about 10% of each of the groups had the same lingering illness triggered by a very different kind of infectious agent. So what does that suggest? What it suggests to me is that what they were suffering from, those 10% who did not get better, what they were suffering from was some sort of hardwired, programmed response of their body to being inf infected. Uh, it was more, uh, th their illness, their lingering illness was more caused by something about how their body responded to the infectious agent than the infectious agent itself. Yeah. Uh, the, vil the villain here was the way their body responded. And when the COVID epidemic began, um, a number of us said very early on, there's a real chance that following this brand new and very different kind of infectious agent, we're going to see exactly the same thing that a fraction of people, uh, after they recover from the initial illness, are still not going to be fully better. They, they will have a lingering illness that is very similar to MECFS, very similar to uh, the illnesses that were seen in the Dubbo study. And that, of course, is exactly what has happened. Sure, sure. I, I mean, that is so important. You know, as I'm listening to you speak, I am reminded of some of the discussions that I've had with various people uh, in power in Australia um, that uh, <laughs> where, you know, the outcomes of the Dubbo study, for example, nobody would think of. And funnily enough, um, you know, how the body responds rather than the infection itself, which is what you just said, is kind of negated. Nobody is, is really looking at that. There's such a focus now on long COVID. Is that the same in the United States, that they're not really looking at all the work that's been done in MECFS that could be so instructive in addressing the issues people have with long COVID? Well, I think um, there is no doubt that the paper you're referring to in the Frontiers in Medicine um, points out the many similarities between MECFS and long COVID. Similarities not just in the symptoms that they have, uh, 
but similarities in the underlying biological abnormalities that are being identified for both of those two illnesses. Um, at first, uh, I was critical of um, the fact that as plans to study long COVID were being developed, people were not paying more attention to what already had been learned about the underlying biological abnormalities in ME-CFS, because I thought that they were likely to be similar um, and that, that the studies for long COVID should be informed by what already had been learned in ME-CFS. I think there are some people who didn't take that advice, um, but nevertheless, enough people did take that advice that we're seeing that it is true that the two illnesses have some very substantial overlap in what is going wrong in the body. And the studies show in both illnesses that unfortunately there is a lot going wrong in the body that probably explains the symptoms of the illness. So that's the underlying abnormalities you're talking about. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, and your roadmap, I I've read your article and um, uh, we've in fact included a reference to your article in our State of the Nation report, which has just been published. I'm very happy to send you a copy of. Uh, I'd love to see it. Um, your roadmap to the literature is, is really critical and uh, the tables where you highlight um, uh, the the common uh, symptoms of both conditions actually say it all. So, um, uh, yeah, that's been a really important piece of work. The other, the other emphasis you make in your article uh, is that both illnesses, both ME-CFS and long COVID, are real. And, of course, uh, that is one of the major issues that people with ME-CFS have been fighting for a long time, given that there has almost been a slur there that it's um, all psychological and actually not physical. Do you want to comment on that a little bit more? Sure. Um, it's a very important part of the history of this illness. When, when people... When, when doctors first started to get interested in ME-CFS in the mid-1980s, um, it was defined and still is defined by a group of symptoms. Well, symptoms are subjective. Anyone can say they have a symptom. And what a doctor, what a scientist wants to know is, is there anything that objectives, anything I can measure that that is abnormal in your body that could explain these symptoms. And at first, the, the typical kinds of laboratory tests that doctors would order um, didn't show any clear abnormalities. And so it remained uncertain. You know, is there anything wrong in these people who say they have these symptoms? Is it 
real. That's what people meant by the word. Is is there something you can measure that's objective biologically in the body that's that's abnormal, that's not right? And at first the answer was we can't find it. But I would say by about the middle 1990s, uh, there's, there now started to be a number of things that were clearly objectively wrong in the body. And then in the last, let's say, 24 years since the turn of the millennium, uh, there's just been a flood of publications, peer-reviewed publications, nearly 10,000 of them, that show clear abnormalities of the brain, of the autonomic nervous system, which leads out of the brain and controls many of the body's vital functions like heartbeat and blood pressure, abnormalities of the immune system, abnormalities of metabolism, particularly energy metabolism, um, abnormalities of the cardiovascular system, the heart and the blood vessels, and possibly the lungs, they're all tied together. Um, and finally, abnormalities of the bacteria that live in our guts. Uh, all of these were shown between the mid-1990s and the current day in MECFS, and then in the last two to three years uh, that people have been studying long COVID, the same group of abnormalities are being found in people with long COVID. So that's what the article lays out in in agonizing detail. Um, there, it. It's, it is designed, as you said, Anne, to be a roadmap that leads anyone interested, whether they're a doctor, a scientist, patient, to look exactly at what kind of brain abnormalities uh, have been identified and which specifically are the articles that show those abnormalities. Yes. And are there any articles that, that t contradict that, that can't find the abnormalities yeah. and then if you count them up are there more studies that show the abnormalities are present than then challenge that and so it, it lets the reader get a sense of the balance of the evidence of each of these types of abnormalities yes absolutely and your article uh for those who are listening uh was published in june 2023 in Frontiers in Medicine, MECFS and Long COVID share similar symptoms and biological abnormalities, abnormalities roadmap to the literature. So uh, it is available online for anybody to read. And I, uh, I uh, recommend it highly. It's a, it's a great article. So um, given uh, everything we've found out about the range of um, infections, that um, can trigger uh, a similar response in patients um, given what we know about long COVID. Do you believe um, there is a case um, to put a national strategy together more around post-infectious illnesses 
Um, so more of an integrated approach rather than um, what we're seeing currently in Australia still, the very siloed approach of um, focus, focus on long COVID, we've got to do something about it, but not such a great focus on MECFS or other diseases that, as you've outlined and as the Dubbo study outlined, have resulted in these sets of symptoms that we call MECFS. Do you think a more integrated approach would be helpful? I uh, very much agree with that. I think um, it, what, what we know for sure is that uh, quite a number of infections, not just those in the double study, not just uh, long COVID, but a number of other viral, bacterial, uh, protozoal uh, infections can cause the same set of similar lingering symptoms as you see in MECFS and long COVID. So that su suggests that um, there's some common uh, abnormality in how the body responds to infection in some people. And it's affecting a lot of people. Uh, and therefore, we should be studying it. Studying it as a similar, if not completely identical, uh, abnormalities following different kinds of infections. And I was encouraged uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who has been for many years uh, one of the most famous doctors in the United States and internationally, an infectious disease expert uh, and immunology expert. He came out very strongly for the importance of exactly this, of a national integrated uh, study, non-siloed study of post-acute infection syndromes of which MECFS and long COVID uh, are probably just two examples. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is something that we at Emerge Australia have been pushing for now for probably 18 months. And uh, uh, it, it, it's difficult to get that traction. We're currently in a very much of a focus, singular focus on long COVID. And, um, but we believe uh, that that is going to be uh, having an integrated approach and having studies that focused on post-infectious uh, disease or post-viral infection uh, would result in uh, all of the evidence and all of the research being able to be shared and used. And it also would result in uh, um, a better return on investment for our government and our funders. So um, what you're saying is music to my ears. <laughs> Emerge Australia aims to ensure that anyone impacted by MECFS or long COVID has access to support, information and advocacy that empowers them with the knowledge and skills to make their lives more livable. We offer support to over half a million Australians who face MECFS and long COVID. So I'm going to come on to a topic that, that is really important, as you know, to patients, and that is uh, the use of graded exercise therapy 
and um, also the claims that um, MECFS is largely a result of deconditioning so that if you fix the deconditioning, you will actually um, heal the patient. Can you um, comment on that? Sure. Um, it's, um, it is a controversial question. Um, there was a study, there were several studies done of graded exercise therapy um, that, that claimed when they were published to find a benefit uh, in graded exercise therapy. But serious questions have been raised about the way those studies were conducted. And my own, I have no idea whether those serious questions are valid or not, um, but, but my own opinion is those studies should not be taken at face value until a very systematic analysis is done to determine if they were flawed in any way. So that's one reason that I'm uh, hesitant to recommend graded exercise therapy. Another reason uh, is that people with MECFS and people with long COVID have been shown to suffer from what's called post-exertional malaise, which is a flare-up of their symptoms that follows physical exertion, cognitive exertion, uh, orthostatic stress, which means basically being on your feet for a long time. Uh, those three kinds of physical stresses uh, can provoke a flare-up of symptoms, symptoms including not just fatigue, but difficulty thinking, brain fog, uh, aching, pain, and, and other symptoms that are central to both of those illnesses. So some people simply can't tolerate graded exercise therapy because it produces flare-ups. So I think right now, uh, there is no good reason to prescribe graded exercise therapy until we understand a lot better uh, how to do it if it's worth doing at all. And if it's worth doing at all, it's going to be very cautiously. Uh, so that's, that's graded exercise therapy. As to whether MECFS is just a result of deconditioning. Um, to go back to the, the paper we were discussing a minute ago, it's impossible to believe that all of the abnormalities that have been reported in MECFS or long COVID in the brain, in the immune system, in metabolism, in the gut microbiome, uh, that all of these are the result of deconditioning. There is no, nothing about what we understand of the, of the physiology of deconditioning that would explain all of that. So I, I really don't um, have much truck with that, that, uh, that argument. 
Yeah, thank you for that. It's a big issue. It continues to be a big issue, uh, particularly given, you know, some of the long COVID clinics that have that have um, cropped up. You know, graded exercise therapy is used in those. Some people with long COVID over time get better, and uh, of course, when that is then that theory is then applied to people with MECFS. We see the direct opposite. People crash, as you say, it's it's not suitable for them. So there's still a, a long way to go in in trying to find the middle ground. And um, your answer is very clear there. Thank you for that. Apart from re- from funding for research, what do you see or what do you believe are the major obstacles to um, you know progressing? MECFS research further because it's underfunded compared to everything else? Well, funding is a big problem, uh, certainly MECFS research. In the United States, um, there is, a, I think, enough funding directed at long COVID right now. Uh, it isn't all directed in quite the right direction. If I were king, I would be um, spending more of it trying to learn or apply the lessons that have been learned in MECFS. But there's a lot of funding in the United States for long COVID, uh, not enough uh, for MECFS, but it's been growing substantially, MECFS research support in the last 10 years. So the trend is good, but it could be better. Um, The other obstacles, I think the biggest obstacle besides funding is that so few people in the research community and so few people who are deciding how the research dollar should be spent are aware of all of the research of the thousands of articles on MECFS, the underlying biology of MECFS. and that's they don't they don't know how much has already been learned and what the obvious next questions are based on what has been learned because they're simply unaware of the literature that was one of the reasons that i wrote the paper we've been discussing so that it would make it easy for people to see at a glance what do we know about this illness what's going wrong in the body and people with this illness so that people who have a particular focus and talent can say, oh, well, if that's true, then the, then I think the next most important thing to study is this. Um, it's, it's ignorance of what already has been learned is the second biggest obstacle besides funding. Yeah, th- that's a really important point because I'm, <clears throat> uh, and we are finding that uh, ignorance, absolutely, but also there's a huge reluctance uh, to even consider uh, that huge body of work that's been undertaken. It, it, it's like a singular focus still in Australia right now. Uh, there's chances that it may be changing, but, um, you know, it's very slow progress. So um, i that's a really helpful perspective uh, from you on that. 
um, and something that I think I'll work on in the next coming weeks, particularly in promoting the article um, uh, that you wrote, because I think, you know, having that full list of literature available is, is extremely helpful and instructive. You know, there is, a, there is a silver lining around the cloud that we've been discussing, which is that if I'm right that long COVID and ME-CFS share a lot of underlying biology, then the very large investment that's being made in studying long COVID should pay dividends in terms of understanding ME-CFS. So it's not an entirely negative thing that there that there is this narrow focus right now on long COVID. And I understand two reasons why that focus exists in the United States and probably in Australia. One is that there are an awful lot of people with long COVID and the implications for uh, society, for the economy are are huge. Uh, in two senior economists in the United States have estimated that the cost to the United States economy over the next five years from post-COVID illnesses, of which long COVID is a big part, that the cost to the U.S. economy over the next five years will be approaching $3 trillion dollars. $3 trillion. That's something on the order of what the hit was to our economy from the Great Recession of 2008 and 9. Uh, it's a major problem for society, and that's why the, this, there's this focus on long COVID. The other fo reason to focus on long COVID is, unlike with MECFS, here with long COVID, we know what infectious agent is is apparently causing the, the illness because people didn't have the illness before they got infected. So that helps with structured research questions when you have a narrower target, like a particular virus, uh, and, and, and that makes people enthusiastic. I happen to think that what they learn about the body's response to that virus will also have lessons for MECFS, but that remains to be proved. Yeah, that's a really important point that you raise. Um, that means that there is a starting point for um, long COVID because you know to get long COVID, the starting point is COVID. I'm I'm wondering, you know if you use that that philosophy of having a, a defined starting point, whether if we do have a broader focus on post-infection and post-viral illnesses, whether um, we could um, look at having a focus on, for example, anyone who gets glandular fever as a potential target. What do you do? Is there anything you can do? to minimise the impact or minimise the chance of someone going on to develop ME-CFS if you develop any of these particular viruses so that we develop a set of starting points for those other 
viral and infectious diseases um, as well as COVID. Is that something that's feasible? Yes, it is. And in fact, there already have been in the United States and in Great Britain, a number of studies of glandular fever or mononucleosis, as we call it, that have followed people forward and seem to be offering lessons that apply to to MECFS. So I I agree with you. Great. <laughs> that, that was just off the top of my head. Um, so um, what is it that's exciting you in MECFS research right now? You know, is, is there something where you feel there's good momentum and um, it's really piquing your interest? I think uh, what's exciting me are a couple of questions that that come from what I've said about the the discovery of the underlying abnormalities in MECFS and in long COVID. Uh, the two questions to me are the the next very general research areas to to explore. Yep. One is if the if what's going wrong is some some abnormal response of the body to an infection um, in 10% of people in the Dubbo study, um, why is the body responding like that? Uh, what, if there are abnormalities of the brain and autonomic nervous system, of the immune system, of metabolism, of the cardiovascular system, of the gut microbiome, wh- why are all of those things happening? And how do they affect each other? If you create one of these abnormalities, could it trigger another one of the abnormalities? Um, Can they reinforce each other? Can setting one of them off be like toppling a row of dominoes where, where the underlying pathology reinforces itself and turns itself into a chronic disease? Understanding how all of these abnormalities, which now are well-established individually, how they collectively affect each other and why they're happening in the first place. That's uh, not a single narrowly focused research question. It's a broad question that can be approached in a lot of different ways. So that's, that's one major area that I think desperately needs to be pursued. And then the last question is, okay, so you've got all of these different kinds of abnormalities that I've described, but how do they actually produce the symptoms that people are suffering from? Because that's really the holy grail. That's what you want to find out. You want to find out why are they having these symptoms? Because if you understand it at the level of what's going on in the body, maybe you can target that that thing that is causing the symptoms and end the symptoms. Uh, so what does that mean? Um, the symptoms, all symptoms, are experienced in the brain. 
is it possible that there is a part of the brain, a few neurons in the brain that are dedicated to causing the group of symptoms that anyone who has ME-CFS or long COVID can tell you they're having. Is it possible that a part of the brain is the final common pathway that when it gets turned on, when it gets activated, leads to the symptoms of the illness? Because if that's possible, then finding that common pathway in the brain and finding a way to turn it off would be a way of alleviating the symptoms of the illness. Now, right. that's that, that sounds theoretical, but in fact, uh, in mice, several studies in the last three or four years have identified parts of the brain that appear to do exactly that in mice. And humans are not like mice in all respects, um, but we're often like mice, and maybe what's being learned in mice will prove to apply to humans. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, certainly that is exciting. It does pose questions for me of when you start switching something off in the brain, what other impact does that have on the rest of the body apart from what you're trying to um, correct? Um, right. But uh, it is, it's a fascinating area of study and um, uh, if it's already been looking, been looked at in mice, I'm sure that um, that research will progress further. Fascinating stuff. So finally, um, do you have one final message of hope that you would possibly be able to leave our audience with, in fact, in terms of, you know, for example, our MECFS community feel very left out. Um, they've had a very long wait um, and still really don't have an outcome, don't have a cure, um, don't have agreed treatment protocols. What message of hope could you um, give uh, those people listening today? Well, I can understand their, their frustration with suffering from an illness that that we're only beginning to understand uh, at all. Uh, but, but the way I see it, after nearly 45 years of, of having been involved in, in trying to care for people with the illness and study the causes of the illness, the thing that strikes me is that we were totally ignorant 45 years ago. Uh, we really didn't have any knowledge that would allow us to help people who were suffering from MECFS. And now, 45 years later, we understand so much more about what is going wrong in the body at that presumably causes the symptoms of the illness that hasn't led to a perfect treatment, certainly to a cure, um, but it's what you need to understand in order to get a cure. And we now 
have a lot more targets to shoot at to try to reduce the symptoms of this illness than uh, we did uh, when I first became interested in it. So I see real progress, and I also see the fact that long COVID has become such an important problem to society, such a visible problem. I believe that it will, uh, the focus on long COVID, even though I wish it were more informed by what we know about MECFS, I think the focus on long COVID will learn lessons that will prove to apply to MECFS and will speed our way to what we all want, which is uh, a cure to end the suffering of this illness. On that note, um, Professor Anthony Komarov, thank you so very much for your time today. Uh, we certainly look forward to keeping in touch with you and also keeping our audience informed of your ongoing work and uh, really appreciate um, your time with us today. So, Tony, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Anne, for having me. I enjoyed it. That's a pleasure. So today's podcast is part of our clinical series brought to you by Emerge Australia. Our aim is to bring the work of our brilliant clinicians and researchers from all over the world uh, to our Australian MECFS and long COVID communities, promoting the latest research developments and providing hope. This is a platform where together we can explore the pressing issues faced by 250,000 people with MECFS in Australia and at least 400,000 more with long COVID. Tune in again for our next interview. And don't forget, for more information, to subscribe to the Emerge Australia newsletter. You can visit us on our website on www.emerge.org.au. Tony, thank you again, and bye for now. You may say that I'm a dreamer But I'm not the only one And I hope someday you'll join